before we start in on our um, the sermon today, let me uh, just share with you something um, that I was encouraged by, convicted and encouraged by, um, and it especially came to mind again as uh, we were singing this uh, weekend. Uh, Mike Maldonado and I, one, one of our elders, was able to meet with uh, the Herb of Herb and Evelyn. You know, the, some of you know the, the young couple um, who were missionaries over in the Middle East, North Africa region. They're back over here for a little bit of a furlough. Anyways, we were talking to him, just asked out of curiosity, you know, is there anything that stands out to you when you, you know, after you've been away for about three years and you come back here stateside, you know, what, do you see things in a different way? Do you experience things differently? What, you know, what do you think? And it was very interesting, very interesting. Uh, one of the first things that he, uh, that he said was is that when he comes and when he has the opportunity to, to sit in gatherings like this is that he thinks to himself about all the other Christians, all the other church members sitting around him is, you don't know how good you have it. So uh, he describes in, in their context, you know, maybe uh, um, eight believers that gather together, try to gather together on a regular basis, eight. They don't have a building, so they can't, they can't come do this. They can't come sit. They, they have to do it more open air. But because they're in the open, open air out, out in public, they have to be very discreet about what they're doing. And two things that he said about that. One, because they're out in the open, they're not you know, in a building or you know, in, in any sort of place that affords them privacy. They can't sing. They can't sing. And then the, um, the other thing that he mentioned, and I love this because this gives me a chance to give uh, you techies a little bit of a barb, um, but he says they, they can't bring a, a Bible in print, so they have to use their cell phones, right? They have to look at their Bible on their phones. So see, you have it so good that you ought to be bringing a Bible in print, all right? And if you don't feel guilty for, no, I'm not going to go that route. But it, it was just a good reminder of the fact that uh, as crazy as what life can be, as frustrated as what we can get with one another, or as, you know, I, I don't know, just all of our quirks and eccentricities and uh, frustrations that we can have with facilities and all of that, um, to hear, you know, a brother who ministers and serves in, uh, with much less at his disposal to say, you don't know how good you have it. And uh, for one of the things that we ought to be thankful for is just the freedom and the ability to be able to gather and sing together. Um, what a gift. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open up to Leviticus. We're trying. My goal or my intention in this series is not necessarily to go through Leviticus uh, verse by verse, maybe not even as we'll see today, maybe not even necessarily chapter by chapter in the way that we often do with uh, some of our, our book studies. I think... Leviticus being something of uh, a little bit of an oddity to most of us, just sort of wanted to approach this series as sort of learning how to walk through Leviticus before you even try to run. 
So much of what we're going to try to do in this series is just, is, um, I think as we said last week in the, in the introduction, is just trying to um, help one another get just an overall view of what's happening in Leviticus and the major movements of the book. So that hopefully, I mean, this would be my prayer and this would be my delight if I, you know, heard of anyone doing this, that as a result of spending this time in Leviticus on Sunday morning, you might be motivated or encouraged to go back and reread Leviticus for yourself and actually to take time to dig into the details because having a framework for the book gives you the ability to better understand or interpret some of the particulars of the book. We'll, we'll, you'll, I, I think you'll see that in um, in the time that we have today. So what we're going to do today, the first seven chapters of Leviticus is basically what we're going to try to survey today, and we're not even going to be able to do all seven chapters, but the first seven chapters of Leviticus deal with the sacrifices that God prescribes or gives to his people, okay? So here's, here's the way to, to think about this, just in terms of the flow of the story as we look at the, the sacrificial requirements in Leviticus 1 through 7. Remember, we mentioned this last week, Exodus ends with the tabernacle, also sometimes called the tent of meeting, being completed, constructed, set up, erected, ready for God to come in and to make his presence known. He does that at the end of Exodus. When his glory fills the tabernacle, the statement is, is that when the glory of the Lord filled the tent of meeting, that Moses was not able to enter in. So there's a tension that the tent of meeting, the place that God has instructed the people to build so that he can meet with his people and so that his people can meet with them, being filled with his glory, actually prevents them from doing the very thing that he intends to happen, which is to meet with his people. If God's people can't approach God because of the sheer power of his glory, because of the magnitude and the depth of his holiness, how will they? And that's where Leviticus 1 comes in, starting in the very first verse. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. It's as if the Lord is calling to Moses and saying, Moses, if you and the people want to come near, if you want to get closer, I'm going to tell you how that can happen. And so it's no surprise then that the first major section of Leviticus is given over to sacrifices. The way to draw near to God is through sacrifice. And that's the only way that God's people can draw near. Here's what I'm hoping as we spend our time in the Word this morning. I'm hoping that if you're a Christian here, if you know Christ to be your sacrifice for your sins... When you consider, when you reflect on the fact that everything that's represented here in the sacrifices of Leviticus have been perfected and satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ, I hope that you go out singing, My Jesus, I love thee. And if you are not a Christian, if you do not know Christ, as your substitute, as your sacrifice for sin, as the one who brings you to God to reconcile you in spite of your sin, my hope and prayer is that you would have ringing in your heart, Lord, I need you. That you would know that apart from the death of Christ credited to your account, that you do not have access to God and that you are shut out from the life that he has to offer. 
Look with me in Leviticus chapter 1. Let's just read a handful of verses here that will have to serve as something of uh, a representation of much of what you have in the rest of the book before we begin, or the rest of this section before we begin to look into some of the particulars. Leviticus 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, will offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to us even today. Let's pray. Father, help us to see most clearly how all of these things that we read in Leviticus point to Christ. Remind us of the fact that our desperate need for you exceeds even what we are aware of. And that such is your grace and mercy that you have provided for us in ways that we cannot even begin to comprehend. May we go out from here loving Jesus more for his sacrifice on our behalf. And it's in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. So here's one of the things that happens in Leviticus 1 through 7. There there are five basic sacrifices or offerings. If if some of you are working from a Bible that has headings, your headings probably will help you sort of track through the different sacrifices and offerings. Let me say a couple things here. If you happen to grab some notes, at at the top of your notes, you have a list of the five main offerings that are described in Leviticus 1 through 5 or roughly into Leviticus 6, okay? It needs to be said that the sacrifices that are represented here are not all of the sacrifices. This is not an exhaustive list of the sacrifices that uh, that the nation would have offered in their different forms or expressions of worship. However, what these sacrifices, these five seem to represent, seem to be at the core, like the, the core essential sacrifices that provide the foundation for all of the other sacrifices or sacrifices that may follow on on along with it. So if you go from Leviticus, you can read about other sacrifices in Numbers, for example. You even have implications or hints of other sacrifices in Exodus before you even get to Leviticus. But these are the core, okay? There are five sacrifices that are mentioned. And each one seems to serve a slightly different purpose, even though you can group them in two distinct categories. Okay? So here they are. The first one that you find in chapter 1 is the burnt offering. That's the section that we just read. 
The burnt offering is the only offering that's offered where the entire animal is given over to the Lord on the altar. The, the entire animal, except for the parts that are supposed to be disposed of, are consumed on the altar. No one gets to share in the meat or in the food. All of it goes to the Lord. And the burnt offering, although it's not explicitly stated, over and over again in the Old Testament, seems to have with it the idea that you are bringing this burnt offering, this total, whole, complete offering as a sign of your devotion and your fellowship with God. The second offering that's mentioned is in chapter 2. It's the grain offering. This is not from an animal, as you can imagine from the title. Grain offering is what you give from, say, your, your crops or your produce. And you give the grain offering. It's something, at, something like a tribute offering, offering to express your thanks or even as a way to show your, your honor to the Lord as your Lord. Third sacrifice in chapter 3 is the peace offering. The peace offering is the sacrifice or the offering that you make when you want to celebrate the peace that you have with God. Now, interestingly enough, even here, as you read further in Leviticus, you find that there are three different times at which you might want to offer a peace offering to the Lord when he's delivered you from danger and you're enjoying that kind of peace, when you have successfully fulfilled a vow, and so in keeping your vow to the Lord, you don't have to worry about there being any obstacle or barrier between your fellowship and the Lord. You, you've fulfilled your word to the Lord. Or just the fact that the Lord has been good to you and you're enjoying his presence. So there are a multiplicity of ways, even in the peace offering, that you might want to celebrate your peace and your reconciliation with God. And then the last two, typically referred to as the sin offering and the guilt offering. A little bit of overlap here, so it can be a little bit confusing. We won't go into all the details, but the sin offering is more along the lines in chapter 4. The sin offering has more to do with the idea of purification. All right, it's the sin or purification offering that the worshiper would give in order to be cleansed from sin or the effects of sin. So even if you yourself did not do anything to defile yourself, but you were defiled by someone else or some other event, a sin offering or a purification offering is what you would bring to the Lord. And then the last one, that starts around chapter 5, verse 14 is what's referred to as the guilt offering, or we might say the reparation offering. This is when your sin affects either the Lord or one of your neighbors in some way. You've brought harm to them because of some sin that you've committed. Your sin needs to be atoned for, and also with the atoning sacrifice that's going to cover your sin, you also then, with that sacrifice, provide a way to restore what it was that the damages that you brought to the Lord's tabernacle or to your neighbor. So it's seeking to take care of sin and to compensate any damages that your sin may have incurred. All right, so, so these five. Now, here, so here's the thing. As you, as you move just from the overview and you see that you have these five different sacrifices, all right, one of the things that we might want to ask ourselves is, why even bother? with five different sacrifices, right? 
I mean, after all, if, if what's going on here is at the end of Exodus, the people can't come to meet with the Lord, and in Leviticus 1, the Lord is calling to Moses to say, here's how you can come and you can draw near and meet with me. Why not just make it nice, simple, and easy, give them one sacrifice, one chapter, and say, here's how you get in. Why the multiplicity of sacrifices? Why does it take five that have to be covered right up front? I think there are clues in the text. So here's where, if you have a printed Bible, you're going to be in good shape. If you've got a Bible on your phone, good luck. Okay? Here's one of the things we want to do. We, we can probably group the first three offerings, so the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. We can group those together, and then we can group the last two together, the sin and the guilt offering, or the purification and the reparation offering. So two categories. And the reason that it seems like we can, we can group them into two divisions like that is because of some repetition that goes on as these sacrifices are being described. So, for example... Walk with me through some of these early chapters. In chapter 1, verse 9, the burnt offering is said to make it possible for the person to be accepted before the Lord. Okay? But, interestingly, at the end of the process, what is stated and what is, seems to be stressed is what you read at the very end of chapter 1, verse 9. The priest will offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. That happens again in verse 13. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. It happens again in verse 17. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. In chapter 2, with the grain offering, at the end of verse 2, Leviticus 2.2, 2, the priest will offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. It happens again in 2.9, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And then with the next sacrifice or offering in chapter 3, the peace offering, same thing. 3.5, it is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And again in 3.16, an offering by fire for a soothing aroma. There's no strong mention of sin here, in other words. That's, that's sort of the surprising thing. It's not that, the, that these three offerings, if you were to, to bring this offering to the Lord, it's not to suggest that you come as a worshiper without any sin, but that just doesn't seem to be the focus or the purpose of these particular offerings. In fact, one of the things that you could say is that as you look here, all indications are is that the person who brings one of these first three offerings are bringing their offering, their burnt offering, their grain offering, their peace offering, because they are already enjoying communion with the Lord. They are in communion with the Lord. There has, there has not been anything that has broken that relationship or that fellowship. 
These are largely, if we could say it this way, these are largely sacrifices that you would bring of a very positive nature, right? You want to express your devotion to the Lord, and so you give a burnt offering. You want to thank the Lord for the way that He has blessed you materially, and so you give a grain offering. You want to thank the Lord for the way that He has protected you from your enemies, or the way that He has carried you through a particularly difficult situation to keep you whole and intact, and so you offer up a peace offering. Do you see? These, these offerings, in one sense, are celebratory. These are sacrifices that are offered for people who are in communion with the Lord. That's the first group. The second group, the fourth and fifth sacrifice, seem to be something of a contrast to that. These are sacrifices that are given for communion with the Lord. In other words, whereas the first three are celebrating your life with the Lord, the fourth and fifth sacrifice seem to suggest or indicate that there is something that has created a barrier between you and the Lord. So, look with me in, let's see, uh, chapter 4. Uh, go to chapter 4, verse 20. So, in the sin or purification offering, this statement is made. Remember, the first three, it was said, these, these sacrifices will be offered up as a soothing aroma to the Lord. The Lord takes delight and pleasure in it. Here, in 4.20, we read, he shall also do with the bull, just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest will make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Look at 4.31. At the end of the verse, Thus the priest will make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. At the end of verse 35, Thus the priest will make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. And that gets carried over into chapter 5 as well. In these instances, in chapters 5 and 6, something has happened. Some sort of defilement or sin has happened that has created a separation that has made you unworthy to approach God, and your sin and your impurity needs to be dealt with if you are to draw near to God to continue to enjoy your communion and fellowship with him. It's dealing with sin. It's dealing with the effects of sin. Not only for yourself, but for the congregation, for the community. So let's go back to our first question. Why five sacrifices? Why not just one sacrifice and be done with it all? Well, I think when you look at the differences and you see that these sacrifices are given as a way to express your enjoyment of God, your communion with Him, these sacrifices are offered as a way to say something has, has interrupted my relationship with God. It needs to be restored or I've been, uh, I've been made impure and need to be cleansed again. I think what God is indicating to His people is that no matter what the situation is, no matter whether you are having your best day or your worst day, everyone comes into the presence of God the exact same way. It has to be through a sacrifice. Now, 
no one can approach God on their own terms. Right? This is, this is somewhat intuitive or natural for us to understand with the last two, with the sin offering and with the guilt offering, right? When we need purification or when we need to, to be reconciled to our neighbor because we have sinned against them, right? We, that makes sense. But do you understand part of what's going on in the first three sacrifices? When you're coming and you're going to give a sacrifice that is not necessarily meant first and foremost to deal with your impurity or your sin, but is meant to give a soothing aroma to the Lord, you're doing this because you're enjoying communion with God, do you realize that part of what's being said there is that even when you are walking in fellowship with the Lord, even then you are not so good and not so right that you can come to God on your own standing. On your best day, God does not welcome you as his son or as his daughter simply because you are you. On your best day. And praise God, on your worst day, God does not reject you because you are you. But both on your best day and on your worst day. And by the way, we ought to add, your best day probably is not as good as what you think it is. But just for the sake of the argument, for the sake of discussion, let's say you really do have a best day. The only reason that you are enjoying fellowship with your Creator and with your King, the only reason that you can draw near in praise, in prayer, in song, in devotion, is because a sacrifice has been made for you to open up the way. If you want to skip ahead and cheat... Jump to the New Testament. We know what that sacrifice is. It's Christ. Your singing is not so pitch perfect that it does not need to be perfected by the purity of Christ. Your gifts, your service are not so clean, are not so simple that they don't need to be purified by the sacrifice of Christ. Your sins and your impurities are so foul and clean that they must have Christ. But this is not, understand, this is not God in some sort of austere, cold, distant manner trying to make it difficult for his people to come. You understand that, right? This is not Moses going to God, shouting from a distance from the tent of meeting, saying, Will you let us in? Will you let us come closer? It's not Moses that's asking for that. This is the Lord who is initiating this approach. He wants his people to come. 
He wants his people to come. He wants you to come if you belong to him. He wants you to come in any and every circumstance of your life. Every minute of the day is an opportunity for you to come to the Lord because a way has been opened up for you. When you're happy, when you're thankful, when you're pleased, even dumbfounded by how good and kind God has been to you, God wants you to come near and to express that and to share it with Him. That's what He's doing in the first three sacrifices. When you're miserable, when you're downcast, when you failed again, and not by accident, but by choice, by intention, because you succumbed to temptation, because you turned your back on the Lord, because you went a different way, He wants you to come. And He's given you Christ so that you can come whenever, for whatever reason. Can you imagine? Parents, grandparents, do you, do you know the advantage, how easy it is for us in the new covenant to, as parents compared to old covenant parents? Can you imagine trying to teach your children how to approach the Lord under this kind of system? Well, son, you know, here it is. If you're going to go to the tabernacle and you're going to go for this reason, you need to make sure that you have this kind of animal. But if it's this day of the week or this month of the year, then when you bring this animal, you also have to bring another animal with it. Now, all this is good and exciting. We're glad that we're able to go. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't take that animal. That's the wrong sacrifice for the wrong time. Right? In the same way that you have multiplication tables up in the kitchen or something like that to keep it in front of your kids, you probably have to put up some sort of chart or organizational thing so your kids can begin to learn how to approach God. You realize now, parents, grandparents, Brothers and sisters in Christ, if there's ever any question about how or when or why we would approach God or go to Him, all we have to say, we just have one answer. Go to Jesus. Do you have Christ? You're good. Go. You don't have to wait. You don't have to overcomplicate it. Jesus was given for you so that you could go. So at the very least then, one of the things that you see in these early chapters of Leviticus is that God intends for his people to come to him in any and all situations. But because of the holiness of God, any and every situation can only be made available to them if there is a sacrifice that opens the way for them. But as you go through here, there are some other features that, be, that you begin to notice, once again, by way of repetition with these sacrifices. It's not just that this is a sacrifice that you're bringing, but that this is a sacrifice that is a substitute for you. Look with me, once again, running quickly through a handful of verses. Look at chapter 1, verse 4.
when the worshiper approaches the tabernacle, tabernacle with his animal, with his sacrifice, it says in 1.4 that he will lay his hand, that may actually have the idea of pressing down. He will press his hand down on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Look over at 3.2. With the peace offering, he, the worshiper, will lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. 4.4. Four. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull. For the sake of time, let me skip towards the end. 4.33. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where, the, where they slay the burnt offering. In other words, it's not just that these sacrifices are given specific to the occasion. These sacrifices are given specific to the person. It's not merely the event or the experience that the Lord is providing for, but for the person himself that the Lord is providing for. You lay your hand on the animal as a way to indicate, this is my animal, this is my representative, this is my substitute who's being offered up as my payment to enter in. Me, my, mine. Although, isn't it interesting that right when we're tempted to say, me, my, mine, you come a little bit later in Leviticus and you read something like this. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, this is the Lord speaking, and I have given it to you. It's not even your sacrifice that you're bringing. It's the sacrifice that the Lord has given to you to bring for yourself. And then once you bring that animal in and you lay your hands on it, symbolizing the fact that this animal stands in for me, then what do you do with it? You slaughter it. You do. This is your sacrifice. This is your need. You do it. The priest does not kill the animal. Not here. The priest will set it on the altar, the priest will offer it up, but you're going to do the dirty work in slaughtering that animal for your sacrifice. The Lord provides a sacrifice for every situation, and He provides a sacrifice for each one of His people. One of the other things that's, that's interesting when you go through here, if you skip down to chapter 4, when you consider the substitutionary role of the sacrifice, that it's standing in for a specific person, one of the other ways that this is brought out is not merely by the fact that you lay your hand on the animal who represents you, who is your substitute to, to buy your way into the presence of God, 
But you get to chapter 4 and you find out that in some cases, your sacrifice is specific to your standing in the nation. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 3, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Skip a, skip a few verses later down to verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel commits error, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded them not to do, they become guilty. Here's what they need to do. Skip down a little bit further to verse 22. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any of the things which the Lord his God has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty. He's going to offer a male goat. When you skip down to verse 27, if any of the common people sin unintentionally, they're going to offer a female goat. So the sacrifices are specific to the person, even down to the role that they play in the society or the reason or the cause for the offense. Do you know the sacrifice of Christ in this way for yourself? What I mean by that is, do you know that Christ is your sacrifice? Not you, plural, although that's true. You, singular. Do you know that Christ belongs to you in that way? Paul says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. There it is. That's the idea of substitution, right? Christ's death counted for me. It's as if I died when Christ died. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, right? And the life that I now live by faith, or the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me, and gave himself up for me. When Jesus comes, and when he says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, they come and they follow me, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays his life down for not just sheep, the sheep. He knows them by name. And because God has offered up His Son as your substitutionary sacrifice, not in some sort of vague, generic way, Christ was not offered up to say, well, here's a sacrifice for someone. Christ was offered up as a sacrifice for that one, for me, for you, such that if you know that Christ is your substitutionary sacrifice, there can be no doubt of his love for you because he died for you.
And all of this, all of this, the variety of the sacrifice, the substitutionary nature of the sacrifice, the messiness of the sacrifice, everything is pointing ahead to the work that Christ is going to do when Christ himself takes up all of this in himself and becomes all of Leviticus for his people all of the time. One other thing that we ought to consider in these early chapters, and this will help also then sort of bridge into the next section of Leviticus, which deals with the priests. When you look at Leviticus 1 through 7, if you were to try to sum up Leviticus 1 through 7 in sort of a a summary sentence, you might say something like, God calls his people to himself by way of a sacrifice through the work of a priest. So here's another interesting feature that happens that you begin to notice by way of repetition. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 5. He, talking about the worshiper, will slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, will offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is, that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Look at 2.2. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of the flour and the oil, And the priest will offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar. 3.5. Then Aaron's sons shall offer it up in smoke on the altar. 4.35. At the end of the verse, thus the priest will make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Do you see what's going on here? So you come with the sacrifice that the Lord has provided for you to open up a way for you to draw near to the Lord. You bring that sacrifice. This is your substitute. This counts for you. But even then, you're you're still not in the clear because you can't offer that sacrifice yourself. You're not qualified. You haven't been set apart to do that work. You're not holy enough to offer up a holy sacrifice. That's the reason why you're coming with a sacrifice to begin with, because you're not holy. God makes a priest holy to say, you're going to be the stand-in. So they're going to bring the sacrifice. You're going to bring your offering. You'll identify, you'll slaughter it, and then you'll give it to the priest. And the priest then has to do the work of offering it up in the right way. It's not just enough that you have a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. It has to be the right kind of sacrifice, and it even has to be offered up in the right way. And only the priest can do that for you. You can't do it on your own. But then that creates another point of tension. Because in those statements where it says that the priest will offer it up to make atonement for him, then the next line is, and it will be forgiven him. 
Notice it does not say the priest will offer up the offering and the priest will forgive him. The priest will make the offering and it will be forgiven. Who is doing the forgiving? Not the priest. God is. Which means this. There are at least, well, not just two. You could say half a dozen, right? But we'll just keep it to two. There are two major fault lines in this transaction that could doom you as you try to approach the Lord. One is yourself. You don't come the right way. You don't come with the right sacrifice. But even if you have everything lined up on your end, when you get to the tabernacle, you can't offer up the sacrifice yourself. You have to have the priest do that. But what happens if the priest is a bum? What happens if he hasn't done what he's supposed to do when he starts off his work in the morning? He's not going to be able to make atonement for you. You can bring the right sacrifice. You can do the right thing. You can go through your steps. But if you don't have the right priest, it means nothing. Atonement has not been made for you. And you leave there not having been forgiven. Is there anyone in this room who would want to put their eternal destiny in the hands of someone seated next to you in this room? Anyone. I'm willing to bet my future with the Lord on this person right here. You're a fool if you do. What happens if I don't have a good priest? The sacrifice isn't good. The atonement isn't good. Forgiveness is not there. God is the one who has to look on the worshiper, the sacrifice, the officiant, offering the sacrifice, and who has to say, all of this is according to my purpose, my plan, my revealed will. I will accept this. I will forgive. That is a lot riding on a bunch of mixed up, messed up people like you and me. But what if, what if God himself became all of that? What if God became the perfect worshiper? What if God became the perfect sacrifice? What if God himself became the perfect high priest? And God himself offered to you, his people, all of this in Leviticus in one full and perfect eternal gift, Jesus Christ. If you have that, you have nothing to fear and you have nothing to worry about. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Tell me you don't hear Leviticus in the background of what Hebrews is saying here. Hebrews 10, start with me at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, there it is, not only the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice, but Jesus the priest, the one who offers it up. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Everything that Leviticus is talking about in the first five, six, seven chapters, God is declaring to you through his word, through the work of Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is telling you, you have all of this given to you freely in the person of Christ. Come, enjoy me. What a gift. It makes you want to sing. Are we singing at the end of this service? Where's that? Yeah, okay, good. We're singing at the end of the service. All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And then you can go out singing the rest of the day. Let's pray. Father, we enter into this world, into this life, into this created order as sinners who are bent and determined to rebel against you. We have no desire for you. We are not looking for you. We're not seeking after you. The thoughts and the intentions of our hearts are continually corrupt and wicked, and yet you, in your grace and mercy, intervene by sending your Son to be the sacrifice that would purify a dirty and filthy people to clean us up and to make us able to enter into your presence to be reconciled to you. You have given us all that we need in the sacrifice of Christ. You accept our praises and our gratitude and thanks, not because of our perfection, but because of Christ's perfection. You accept us in spite of our sins, not because you turn a blind eye to our sin, but because our sins have been paid for by the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And you have poured out your spirit in our hearts so that we can know for certain that we have this living sacrifice continually working on our behalf. Father, give us joy and give us delight in all that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we live in a way that we demonstrate our confidence and our security with you. May we continue to be humbled by your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.